Welcome, everyone. Uh, this is Jeff Cohn with the Wall Street Resource. Joining me is Lockheed Given. He's the CEO of Easy Corp Inc. Good morning, Lockheed. Good morning. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Pleasure. So, for those that aren't familiar with Easy Corp, can you just give us a quick overview of the company? Sure. Uh, so, Easy Corp was uh, was founded in the late '80s. Uh, was listed on Nasdaq in 1989. Uh, with a total of between 20 and 30 pawn shops. Uh, and today we are in five countries as our principal business with over 500 stores in the US, 500 in Mexico, about 100 in Guatemala, and then another 35 across El Salvador and Honduras. Uh, we've got some strategic investments in addition to that core business, um, the main one being an investment in a business called Cash Converters, which is an Australian-listed pawn shop chain, uh, which is in 18 countries across the world. Um, so we are, you know, we are a core pawn business. We've been in other other businesses before in adjacent sort of lending businesses, but the strategy currently is to essentially stay true to the pawn shop uh, business, and we're looking to aggressively build across our existing markets and internationally. Okay. So how big a business can this be? What's your addressable total addressable market? Look, I think the pawn business globally is a, a phenomenally large opportunity. I think in, in the existing markets we're already in, there is still a lot of, a lot of um, runway in the U.S., in Latin America. But if you look at the world, you know, the, the pawn shop, uh, the pawn shop industry is very, very large. So if you go to India, there are multiple, multiple billion-dollar businesses. In the Philippines, it's the same. If you look to South America, it's, uh, you know, it's emerging down there. If you look at throughout Asia and Europe and Eastern Europe, it's, it's a very, very large industry. You know, it's currently pretty fragmented. The two largest players are First Cash and us, both listed in the U.S. Uh, so I think, you know, as we look to the future. There is, you know, an immense opportunity for scale across the world. But our, straight, our stated strategy to the market is to do that in a very disciplined way, um, in markets that we understand with very strong local management teams, where there's a stable regulatory environment. So I think while the, while the size of the market is very, very large, I think we're all about doing it, as I said, in, in a disciplined way. Okay. Is there any advantage to scale? Yeah, there's a lot of advantage to scale. I mean, it's, you know, you, you look at your technology system, your point of sale, your corporate costs, you know, that, that is, it's, it's obviously much, much better to have significantly larger scale in stores because truthfully, you, you really don't see scaling of that expense base at the corporate level, the technology level with more stores. So I think you've really hit a, a really strong point for us, which is, you know, our we sort of have three or four strategic pillars, and one of them is to grow the scale of our pawn shops because, as I said, that 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 profitability will scale because the cost that it takes to run those those pawn shops doesn't change much. So, is, is there anything proprietary that you have, or is it just all about execution? It's both. I think execution is is incredibly important. I think people is the most important um, the most important asset we have and the most important strategy that we have. So 
you know, staffing our stores with the best people that we can, retaining those people is critical to what we do. We do have a proprietary point of sale system that we've put a lot of time and energy and resource into over the last 10 years that we think is, is special and that, you know, it's got a whole lot of features that makes our, our store people's lives easier, serves our customers better. I think we're, we're sort of leading the market in moving into the digital, digital age. I think the porn industry has been pretty behind the rest of the world in embracing digital. So, you know, we are now out there really investing in SEO, SEM, digital marketing, um, technology that, that makes our store managers more efficient, giving them iPads to do digital loan walks and, and essentially pick up much more time in the day so that they can spend more time serving our customers. So I think, you know, while that's not particularly proprietary, I think we are leading the market uh, in our digital investment. And, and the reason we're doing that is to acquire more customers to open up new demographics for the pawn shop business because, you know, historically it's, it's been about a lower demographic customer who needs immediate access to cash where we think that that can be expanded immensely to higher demographics who are looking at more luxury goods. You know, our, our fastest growing categories are now luxury handbags, luxury shoes, sneakers, high heels, belts, where, um, you know, people who haven't historically gone to a pawn shop to, to do their shopping are all of a sudden seeing, particularly digitally, that you can find incredible deals in pawn shops with some great products. You know, in Vegas, we've got a fantastic watch collection, for example. Um, so look, it's this, this digital investment that we're making is, is not only to serve our existing customers, but we think that can really open up a totally new customer base from porn who don't want to walk into a pawn shop. They want to get online and they want to see what they can, um, what they can pick up that's value for money, as well as young people we're seeing emerge as customers because they really care about the environment. And, you know, a pawn shop, we say, is a neighbourhood recycler. So in the hundreds and hundreds of neighbourhoods that we operate in, we see ourselves as a local recycler. You know, you would have seen in our last quarterly report that we recycled, I think, 1.6 million products for the quarter, and young people are very, very keen uh, to participate in that circular economy. So we're seeing that customer base emerge as well that we think, you know, really does need to be served digitally. So on the, the retail side, are you competing more with thrift stores or, or just other resale shops? I, I think we're now competing against the whole spectrum. I think we're competing against new. We're, we're competing, you know, not a little bit on the thrift side, but I think you're seeing now a time for the porn industry that's as attractive as it's been in a very, very long time. As, as we are heading into what I think everyone believes is a, is a more difficult economic climate from a macros perspective, I think you're seeing significant tailwinds for the pawn shop business where on the pawn lending side, clearly people need cash because our customers are under pressure from inflation, from higher gas prices, as well as the sort of the competitive or adjacent lenders tightening their credit policies or essentially being regulated out. So we're seeing serious tailwind there, but to your question on the, on the, on the, second part of our business, which is secondhand selling. 
I think we're seeing real tailwind there as well because as, as hard times hit, people are far more interested in secondhand products, particularly real quality ones that we often see in our stores. Uh, so they are, instead of going and shopping at their, you know, the new retailer, are much more interested in finding a deal or finding value for money in a secondhand store. So, you know, I think we're now competing not just with other secondhand physical and digital retailers. I think we're really starting to expand into that competing with, with new. Okay. And then you mentioned you're in several countries. Uh, are there one or mm-hmm. two countries that stand out? And is there a country that's growing, the, a geographic region that's growing the fastest for you? Well, look, the U.S. is obviously still our our largest business. You know, it, it produces, you know, the, the majority of our cash flow, um, you know, and it's a fantastic business. It's it's growing, it's high cash flow, it's high return on capital. It's, you know, it's, it's a very strong business in the U.S. We see more growth. You know, there aren't too many big chains left, but there are still, you know, significant runway for acquisitions and even operating our own stores better than we are today. I think Latin America is is a real growth market. Mexico particularly is, you know, it is still such a huge pawn market given such a large proportion of the Mexican population don't have access to banks. And, you know, pawn is a, a part of the, you know, of the local financial culture. So I think Mexico, you will see, you know, significant growth there. Guatemala, where I was a couple of weeks ago, we've just got a wonderful team down there, a fantastic leader. Uh, that's an excellent market as well, much smaller than Mexico, but I think you know capable of, of more growth. Uh, and then across, you know, then you've got Colombia and Panama and various other countries in that region, which I think are, are also great opportunities. Then, you know, then you expand to the greater world, and it's you know there is as I said earlier in the call, just phenomenally large-scale opportunities across, you know, Europe, Eastern Europe, Asia, South America. But I think just in the geographies we are now, there's still, you know, there's still significant growth, both inorganic and organic, ahead of us. And and for your growth strategy, is it cheaper to to buy or make a store? Are you doing a lot of acquisitions or starting your own? Yeah, it depends on the region. So in the U.S., um, in the U.S., acquisitions have historically been the better way to go because it's, you know, you are buying something that's already got a customer base, that's already usually profitable, got the team in place, and you are, you know, you're immediately usually accretive. With a with a de novo in the U.S. or a new store, it takes capital, it takes two to three years to ramp up, so you are wearing losses. Um, you know, it can work really well as long as you as long as you hire a great team, but it just takes longer with more drag on your earnings. So we've, we've preferred the acquisition route in the US. But in Latin America, it's a, it's a good question. I think there it's both. It's, um, you know, on the one hand, you need to be doing acquisitions for the same reasons that we're doing them in the US. But the economics of a new store in, in Mexico and Guatemala and those countries is much better than in the US as you've got lower cost, lower staff cost, uh, and faster to ramp um, to a loan balance that makes sense from a from an earnings perspective. So, you know, you are profitable far quicker, less cap- capital, so your returns are higher. So, in Latin America, it's a real mix of the two. 
uh, whereas in US, you know, it's 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 well, we'll do a few de novos in really strategic spots. You know, maybe it's a fill-in of a market where we've got an existing cluster uh, or an interesting adjacent market. I think mostly you will see us doing acquisitions in the U.S. Okay. And how do you create awareness to the end user? Look, the old way to create awareness in the U.S. Uh, and Latin America in porn was, number one, to put up a big sign at the front of the store. And number two was to give great customer service so that your customers would recommend you to their family and friends. I think both of those are still relevant, but you know, in addition to that, we just have to get much better on the digital side. So, you know, it's through your websites, optimizing them for SEO and SEM. We've done a um, really successful, about six months it's been going now, a really successful rewards program that we call Easy Plus. Uh, we've got one and a half million members of our loyalty program now, which has just been a phenomenal success. Uh, and so we, you know, we market offers to those members um, to hopefully bring them back into the store, retain them, um, and getting them to do more with us. Um, and we've just hired a, a new CMO who's fantastic, and we're assessing you know, new ways to attract more people and build awareness, but to do it in a, you know, in a really disciplined, returns-focused way. I don't think you're going to go and see us kind of TV advertising and billboard advertising and that sort of old brand awareness strategy. I think it'll be much more targeted. It'll be focused on, you know, on key demographics, um, principally digitally and through our through our loyalty program. Better in-store uh, marketing uh, and good old-fashioned customer service. Okay. And in terms of revenue revenue model, it sounds like you have at least a couple ways. Yep, we've got we've got. There's two principal ways. First is interest on loans. Um, so, you know, the, the the most important thing in pawnbroking is your loan balance. So a customer comes in with a with a good, uh, and either sells it directly to us or takes a loan against it. So when they take a loan, um, they pay interest. And then the second uh, the second form is of of revenue. Uh, the second major form of revenue is when that inventory, so say a customer comes in, doesn't pay back the loan, that loan becomes our inventory that we then have to sell. So we have sales revenue that sells both the inventory that's dropped that way or inventory that we've bought directly from the, from the customer. So you know, I think you'll see it in our deck uh, from maybe our strategy day, I think. I think it's roughly about 35% of our revenue is from... Um, is from interest on, on loans and 65, I think, is um, or 60 odd is is from selling secondhand goods. Uh, and the balance is just some small ancillary stuff like gold scrap. Okay. And on the loan side, do you have a warehouse line, or, or what capacity do you have to be able to do loans? So we we fund that ourselves. Uh, so our capital structure is is we we have two forms of of capital, we obviously have our equity capital, and then secondly, we have two convertible bonds um, that were issued. Um, two private bonds, I think, uh, amount to about three hundred and thirty million dollars collectively. Um, and so that's that's the capital we keep on our balance sheet. We've got roughly, you know, at any time we're sort of between two hundred and two hundred and fifty million over the last two or three quarters of cash on hand. 
So we stay very liquid uh, because, you know, we believe that being a lender, the most important thing to do is to not run out of liquidity to, to provide to our customers. So we're, number one is to always main, maintain significant liquidity for that, for our core business, as well as then to look at inorganic acquisitions that can help accelerate our mission. Okay, and then how about uh, gross margins? How should we look at those? Gross margins, I think you, you go back to our CFO Tim's statements in the last quarterly report. I think they've been uncharacteristically high during COVID. Um, with government stimulus, our customer has just been flush with cash. So while on, the, on one side of loans, you know, our loans came under significant pressure because people didn't need them during that, that stimulus period. But on the selling side, you know, we've never seen sales like it. It was sales, very, very high sales levels as well as very high margins, you know, in excess of 40%. I think in the last, uh, in the last quarterly report, Tim told the market that, you know, to expect somewhere in the 35 to 38%, you know, is, is sort of our long-term average on gross margin. Um, but, you know, we are running a... We are running a business model now that is highly focused on inventory terms. Um, so, you know, margin is the thing that kind of falls out at the back of that formula. You know, we're very focused on selling in our first first inventory um, buckets, you know, 30, 30 days, 60 days, uh, so that our inventory terms are maximised. And, you know, margin can be in that 30 to 35 to 38% level, which I think is still a really healthy level. Okay, so if my homework is right, you stepped in as uh, CEO from the board uh, about eight months ago. Uh, you just had a quarterly report that was quite nice. Have you got all the low-hanging fruit already, or do you have more work to do there? Look, I think, you know, we've been at this now. You know, Jason Coolis, who remains on the board, was the chief executive. I work very closely with him, Tim Jugman's our CFO, and Blair Powell, who's our COO with our, with our team. And, you know, the strategy, we're, we're now into year three of a, of a three-year strategy. And back, back when we started this um, two years ago now, the, the, the three strategic pillars were, number one, to concentrate on the core port business, which I think we've done a fantastic job of. We've, you know, we've essentially migrated or enhanced the operating model to, as I said earlier, be a much more um, capital-focused business in that we're looking for higher returns by turning our inventory faster. So I think, you know, we've concentrated on the people, built our bench strengths, um, and I think in the quarterly results you can really see probably the last, you know, it's probably more than three, four quarters now, you can see really strong operating results, and I think that's, that comes out of that first strategic pillar. The second one was to your question, which was to reduce costs and to continue on a path to simplification across the business. I think Tim did a wonderful job in the first year. We took out about 14 million of corporate costs straight away, which was low-hanging fruit's probably not the, not the right word because it was hard work. But you know we did get significant cost out early. But that process continues, and you know we run a culture now of very cost-conscious uh, operating techniques because you know we, we want that to be part of our culture. Uh, and then the third is to innovate and grow. So to your question on low-hanging fruit, you know, there was some. 
Um, I still think there is a lot of room for improvement. I think there's still a lot of room for growth. Um, but, you know, that low-hanging fruit, we've, pr- we've probably taken a bunch of it, and now it's back to real, you know, old-fashioned execution excellence combined with some really strong growth initiatives that, as I've said, are, are both organic and inorganic. How about you personally? Um, do you want to be CEO for the long run, or do you have certain milestones you want to see achieved first? No, I'm, I'm loving it. I'm absolutely loving it, and I'm very thankful for the, for the board and for our shareholders for the opportunity. Um, you know, I think my milestones are every day. You know, we are a team who are just concentrating on every day. Yes, we have an annual budget, and yes, we have an annual report, but we think the best way to maximise those results is to have daily milestones, weekly milestones, monthly milestones, and so on. So, look, I hope to be here for a long time, uh, as long as the, the board and the shareholders will have me, and I think there is just a lot to do, and I think, you know, I think it's a fantastic time for investors to be looking at this business as... As I said earlier, the macro environment looks to be very, very favourable. I think, um, truthfully, PON does well in all macroeconomic environments. It just does particularly well in, in an environment that we're facing now. How about with inflation? How does that affect you? Uh, look, it's a bit of a two-sided equation. On, on the revenue side, you know, inflation affects our pawn loan balance because as our customers are under more and more pressure, we think that that is going to drive high demand. Um, same thing on our, on our second-hand goods selling. As, as people are under pressure, they'll be looking for deals. They'll be you know, looking to go second-hand rather than new. I think inflation should also rise, should also lift the price that we sell at of our, you know, of our goods. So I think there's, there's definitely revenue enhancements, but like everyone else on the planet, we are facing, you know, inflation pressure on our um, administration costs, on our people costs, on, you know, across the board. So in Tim, we have had a wonderful sort of gatekeeper leader of that team to keep, to keep inflation re-impact in the last 12 months at bay. But he's, you know, he's not Superman. So it's, you know, we are seeing that starting to come through. We've told the market to expect to see that. But, you know, smart investors that we sit with say to us, look, we love sitting with you because it's all about, you know, we're sitting with a, with a company that's got real demand growth, real revenue growth opportunities, real M&A opportunities. Yes, you're facing inflation like everyone else in the world is, but, you know, we love that you're in an, ex- in an expansion room mode at the moment, whereas many others are, are not. Okay. So what do you see as your biggest challenge? I think people is always the challenge um, at the moment because, you know, this great resignation movement over the last couple of years during during and post-COVID has impacted, you know, most retailers. I think it's it has become harder to get people, to retain people, to incentivise people. We've got an incredible head of HR uh, who's now been in the role a couple of years and she's she's just a phenomenal talent. And so together working with our senior team and particularly Blair who leads our, our store business, uh, you know, I think he's the best pawnbroker in the world. I think this team is working on innovative ways to 
to hire people and to to retain them. But I, I would say that that you know it's it's not unique to us. But I think that's what keeps me up is is making sure that you know we have our our stores appropriately staffed, particularly so at the corporate level too. It's you know these you know when you've got high quality talent, they're in demand, uh, particularly at the moment. And so my job is to really make sure that we have the best talent and retain that talent. Um, and you know that that is probably my number one focus. So as we continue to um monitor the company over the next 12 months, what are some of the events or catalysts that we should watch for? Look, I don't think there are any single big catalysts. I think this is a steady build. I think whether, you know, whether the macro conditions change or not will not be a huge impact. But, you know, as, as inflation, higher gas prices, tougher times for our customers remain, I think you'll see even more enhanced um, performance. So I think you know macro macro conditions are important, but from a from an internal perspective, we are just on that daily operating excellence um, conveyor belt, I'd say, which is just all about getting better every day uh, in what we do. Um, so look, you know that's across everything from people to digital to M and A. You know, I, you know, my hope is over the next few years we have strong M&A execution as well uh, because the pipeline is there, uh, the sellers are there as long as they're reasonable in terms of price, which I believe they are. I think you'll see, you know, you should see um, strong M&A execution that accelerates and enhances our mission. But, you know, I think the macro as well as the internal initiatives that we're driving just should see a steady improvement in our operating performance which I you know which I think the market is very appreciative of as you know our stocks up very significantly this year because of this reason and that's just putting basic operating performance on the board you know quarter in quarter out where you don't have significant adjustments to earnings and you are just you're just producing performance uh, and I think that's why we've really been rewarded in the market and our shareholders are are very happy at the moment. We've still got a long way to go, you know, as I keep telling me. Um, but we're up for the challenge, and I think, you know, it's as I said, it's a really exciting time to get involved in the business. But, you know, in my view, the valuation is still very low compared to what what it should be. You know, I think we're trading in that. If you read the analyst reports, we're probably trading in that five to six times EBITDA range, and you know, I see no reason why that shouldn't be double that. So. You know, I think it's a it's a very attractive time to get involved. I'm seeing much more interest from the broader investor base because as soon as you get into this macro environment, people are looking obviously for defensive businesses, and this is one that's not just defensive, but it's a growth business in these times. So, look, it's very exciting for the team and, and for our shareholders. Very good. Well, thanks for sharing the EasyCorp story. I really appreciate it, Jeff. Thanks for having me, mate.